0: Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Elb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Juan Pablo Capello, founder of New Life. New Life is a mental wellness company that offers in-home ketamine therapy. This was a fascinating conversation where we critique the current healthcare system, its incentive structure, new alternative therapies such as New Life, and his own mission and inspiration for founding his company, as well as what's misunderstood about psychedelics. Without further ado, here's Juan Pablo. Juan Pablo, thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing?
1: Great here in New York City enjoying a uh, beautiful day.
0: That's great. That's great. I'm so glad. It's pretty cloudy here in LA today, which I actually like cuz it just keeps it a bit cooler, which is nice.
1: Yeah, you need a little variance of those beautiful days. <laughs>
0: exactly. This is all we get. Anyway, I'm excited to chat with you about new life. From the very kind of beginning a bit. What was your first exposure to psychedelics and and also thinking about ketamine in this way too?
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great question and yeah, life's a journey not a destination. I grew up in Chile. My mother's American, and my father's Chilean, and my paternal grandmother really had a strong hand in raising me, and she was partially indigenous. Mapuche, who are the indigenous people of Chile, and very proud, never gave up fighting the uh, Spaniards, and then later never gave up fighting the uh, military dictatorship that took over when I was six. And so when I was about seven, I was exposed to uh, the uh, Native American church, plant medicine traditions in Chile by my grandmother in the north of of Chile. The desert in Chile is actually called San Pedro de Atacama. And it's often just called the Atacama Desert. It's the driest desert in the world. It hasn't rained in over 400 years. There's some of the uh, most well-known observatories because of the incredible clear sky but it's actually called San Pedro de Atacama because the native people of the Southern Cone would go there to sit in ceremony, celebrate their traditions, and drink the San Pedro cactus, which is a cousin of peyote. And so um, yeah, my, my life journey with the native traditions started quite young. Not that I was fully cognizant, but, you know, when you grow up in Latin America with an abuela who's taking care of you, many of us are exposed to sort of mystical realism, where the spirit world is just part of your ordinary life. Yeah, we had a a witch, you know, who would come every Sunday to read cards and tell us both the past and the future, and then the uh, plant medicine world's really just a way to connect with the spirit world. And actually, interestingly, the shaman, the curanderos are the ones who take the most medicine because they're the ones who actually go
0: talk to the other world. That's really fascinating. What do you believe, maybe in like mass culture? What do you think is misunderstood about some of the customs of, you know, some of the native traditions?
1: Yeah, I'd say the thing that's most understood is these traditions aren't about the individual. They're much more about the collective, the collective healing work and the connections with the past and our ancestors and really respecting those traditions. Unfortunately, in the West, I think we often make the story about ourselves rather than really thinking about ourselves as part of a oneness, a oneness with the universe, a oneness with the planet, a oneness with our traditions and a oneness with our relatives. and. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of times in the West, the reason we feel, you know, disconnected and alone is precisely because we're not recognizing that we aren't anything without our relationships. We aren't anything without this planet. And we turn the conversation a bit too much to ourselves. And that, quite honestly, is why even in the plant medicine world, for a lot of Westerners, they're much more drawn to ayahuasca than to some of the other plant medicines, and in part because ayahuasca often feels like it's speaking to you personally. And many of the other plant medicines, you end up having that feeling of connection and oneness. And I think we as Westerners need to understand that the native traditions before we started distorting them were much more traditions around healing and connection.
0: I really appreciate you sharing that. With all this being said, because I know you've had this isn't your first, you know, company you've, you founded, and this seems actually pretty full circle for you, Find of New Life. But what was what was the inspiration for actually founding New Life? And talk me too about like the time in your life as well that that you were kind of experiencing while you were starting it. Yeah, it's such a good
1: question, and really, my inspiration was a seven hundred plus million dollar failure, um, which for most people probably isn't gonna sound like a failure, so I don't expect anyone to pull out a violin um, or hand me a tissue, right, with this story. But but it really was a, a failure on a deep sort of existential level, which was with some friends, and I wasn't the founder, but I joined, you know, was one of you know, the four people who ran and one of the four partners um, in a company called Patagon.com. It was the first online bank in Latin America, and we sold it for $700 million about three years after we started it. And Basically, you know, I got involved because when I was a little kid, I mentioned, you know, my abuela, my grandmother really, you know, helped raise me in part because my mother was quite young. And she would every couple weeks get a pension check, $70, and would have to ride a bus to downtown Santiago, wait in an hour or two line at the pension office to pick up the check, then would have to walk a few blocks, get go to a bank. There was only one bank in Chile that would bank somebody like my grandmother, lower middle class, and would wait in another hour to two hour line to deposit the check. And I just really thought at the start of the Internet in 97-ish, hey, imagine we could leverage technology to make the lives of somebody like my grandmother you know, more dignified and not have her be misspending a whole Friday every two weeks to deposit a $70 check. That's absurd. Unfortunately, when we started, very quickly investors and the capital sources weren't that interested in us building a bank for lower middle class people in Latin America, a digital bank. Um, They were much more interested in us building an E-Trade for Latin America that would target affluent people. And because, you know, all of us were under thirty, and th- it was our first rodeo. We had this sort of mission drift, where we let the golden rule sort of rule, which you know, he who has the gold imposes the rules. Again, it was not a bad result for uh, four guys from Latin America under thirty to uh, sell a company a few years later for seven hundred million dollars, but. After we sold it and the dust settled, and I really had some time to reflect about what we had accomplished, I realized we hadn't accomplished anything other than enrich ourselves and our investors. We hadn't improved the lives of anyone, and we really hadn't written the kind of positive history that we all started the company trying to write. And so as I've journeyed into middle age and beyond, I'm 55 now, so that was almost 25 or was 25 years ago from when we started that company. You know, I've learned a lot. I've lived a lot. I've cried a lot. (laughs) And I just really decided that coming out of COVID really focused on how I could have the most positive impact possible and this time really committed to leaning into the mission.
0: Got it. What was the mission of New Life? How did you think about what was kind of like the aha moment that led to you founding this business
1: so my mother really an amazing woman uh, and exposed me to so many you know mind opening experiences and traditions you know from when I was a child so not only letting my my grandmother mestizo grandmother um, take me to the desert but you know also take me to mass on Sundays um, my mother raised me as a Quaker she taught ashtanga yoga she um, uh, exposed me to Transcendental Meditation, et cetera. And so my mom has always said, the quality of your life is in direct proportion to the quality of the questions you're willing to ask yourself. You know, if you ask yourself better questions, deeper questions, you're gonna have a better and more meaningful life. You know, and so for instance, when I would always, you know, when I'd say, Mom, I'm stressed, or Mom, I'm scared, or, and she'd always be, she'd say, look me in the eye and she'd say, who's the I we're talking about? <laughs> And it is one of those things that it is a mind F. Because if you actually stop and think, what's the I <laughs> that's the subject of, of that emotion, and you start realizing that whatever you're defining as that I isn't what you really are, right? So. I just need to explain that before I get into sort of the ninja moves my mom did on me when I started talking about this company. Because uh, if you don't understand that as background, you're going to be like, what kind of conversation does this guy have with his mom? So I've always been a plant medicine person, uh, helped start a Native American church in South Florida about 10 years ago. Um, so we could, you know, celebrate our traditions without the risk of, you know, interference or being put in a cage by the government. My uncle, unfortunately, I'm a victim of the drug war. My uncle was in jail for a significant amount of years um, for cannabis. My brother's been arrested for cannabis, et cetera. And so I was talking to my mom about, you know, how I wanted to really have a positive impact coming out of COVID and wanted to make sure I was doing something really mission aligned. And I said, I made a comment along the lines of, yeah, when psilocybin becomes legal, I really wanna start a company in this space. You know, psilocybin, magic mushrooms become legal. And my mom says, well, son, you don't think people are suffering now? And I said, yeah, people are suffering now. And she's like, well, do you think you could help a million people suffer, address the root cause of their suffering and disease before psilocybin becomes legal? And that just seemed like a very heavy lift my mom was putting on my plate. You know, that's a lot of vegetables. She, you know, just a lot of kale and brown rice, and, you know. (laughs) And I just was like, looked at her like, you're really gonna play me this way, mom? That's, That's what it is? That's what I have to do? And she said, yeah, son you know, you've had a lot of opportunity, especially from where you came from. And what if you tried to take that on? So yeah, we really, you know, began trying to unpack that big ask, that big question that my mom put on the table, which is how would you help a million people and not just a million affluent people, a million ordinary people address the root cause of their suffering and disease before psilocybin becomes legal. And that's You know, five, maybe seven years away. So, how do you do that in five to seven years? And that's been the underlying or overarching question that we're trying to address at New Life. So, you know, we didn't start saying, you know, we aren't a company that was founded by, you know, a few white dudes on the playa at Burning Man saying, man, that was a transformational experience. I gotta, (laughs) I gotta, I gotta, I gotta take this show on the road, right? I mean, and unfortunately, that's a lot of the psychedelics industry.
0: I was about to say, i sure really a lot of companies that were founded that way.
1: Yeah, and, you know, hey, that's cool. But, you know, then what companies are doing um, is they're building a company for their friends, right? The cool crowd, the burning, burning man crowd, and an affluent crowd, and quite honestly, primarily a white affluent crowd, right? So we, when we began to think about, you know, building this company, we really decided, you know, we're going to zig. Where the industry's zaggy. And so you know, we started by saying, okay, we're not a psychedelics-centric company. We're a company, we're a next generation mental wellness company that's focused on leveraging technology, medicinal as well as technological, to drive extraordinary patient outcomes. And so, you know, we started the company as a public benefits corp to signal to the market and to investors, hey, we care about mission as well as margin. So avoid mission drift, like happened at my first company at Patagon. Since venture capital generally in the psychedelic space, it tends to be very homogeneous, you know, less than 2% of, uh, dollars invested go to female founders, less than 1% to black founders. The whole founding team of our company are people of color and women. And we decided that we needed to lower the cost of existing therapies by 60 to 80 percent and elevate the standard of care because there's a lot of dollars and money going towards solutions which are only going to ultimately be in the hands of the most affluent and then lastly one of the most disheartening trends in this industry is that companies are trying to either create their own intellectual property or quite honestly steal other people's intellectual property or co-opt other people's intellectual property, ring fence it and charge a toll to allow individuals to reap the healing benefits of that intellectual property. And so one of the things that was extremely important to us from the moment we launched the company was making our data and our processes sort of open source where we share them, share our knowledge with the greater industry to hopefully elevate the standard of care for, to the industry. And if we get things wrong, to be very honest about that, so people who are following in, in our footsteps or coming at this from a different perspective can succeed faster. Because my view, and it isn't just an altruistic view, it's really that this is an emerging industry. And the reality is the addressable market here in terms of people who are suffering and are addressing dis-ease is virtually everyone on this planet. And today, the addressable market is tiny, you know, one tiny fraction of 1% and mainly affluent people. And so if we came together as an industry and stopped viewing each other as competitors, but really viewed our goal as collective healing and really began trying to work together as an industry, guess what? we would grow the pie so much faster that it wouldn't really even matter how big a slice of the pie we get. Because here's a real basic insight, which is, I don't know the exact number, but I know it's not more than $20 million. If you have 20 or more million dollars and you're not happy, guess what? Your unhappiness has nothing to do with your lack of money, right? So there's so many people in this industry. I don't know what game they're trying to play or they're just hoarders, but they're, you know, busy trying to ring fence, busy trying to charge tolls to people who are in desperate need of healing. And we just decided to take a very different approach. So again, just to summarize, Public Benefits Corp., the whole founding team being people of color and women trying to make our data 100% accessible and starting a company that, is lowering costs of existing treatments by 60 to 80%, elevating the standard of care to allow us to service, you know, not just affluent people, but first responders, veterans, indigenous populations, and people recently released from incarceration and hopefully eventually the urban poor. Because quite honestly, that is the demographic of society that's been most victimized by this very unjust drug war that's been mainly waged against them and people of color.
0: Absolutely. How do you also think about care and treatment and making sure you have, you know, your patients have unbelievable care? What does it actually mean to you?
1: I come from this as a, from a technology background, you know, big data, analytics kind of background. So we believe that all companies need to be doing a better job of tracking outcomes and particularly when you're, dealing with people's mental well-being. And so we have an an at-home ketamine model, which I'm sure some people hear and think, oh my God, that sounds incredibly dangerous or irresponsible. I think the way traditional how medicine is traditionally practiced is proven itself to be not only full of conflicts of interest, but incredibly irresponsible. Why? Because people go see a doctor, they get a prescription, often for things far stronger than ketamine and they're sent home and there's no constant communication with your caregiver and you're basically encouraged to come back if and when you're in crisis. What we do is we have an at-home model where the patient and only about a quarter of our prospective patients end up with a prescription. They get a prescription for ketamine. It's six doses in total but they only get The first dose by itself, then they get the next two doses if they follow the protocols for the first dose. And once they get and after they follow the protocols for the second and third dose, they're eligible to get the final three doses. Those protocols include they have to have a sitter of individual who watches them during the experience. Ketamine is a bit of a dissociative, even though it works like a psychedelic and creates neuroplasticity. Virtually all of our patients, when they take the ketamine in lozenge form, they just end up, they are lying down with eye shades and headphones, and they have the equivalent of a very lucid dream for about an hour and a half. So the sitter virtually has nothing that he or she needs to do other than watch television, Uh, quietly or read the newspaper or read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, right? And then because we are integrated with Whoop and with an Apple Watch, eventually with um, the Aurora Ring, we're able to get lots of data about how the patient's done during the experience, but also how the patient's doing after the experience. And then we do all of our integration and aftercare via a telehealth app. So we're in a position where we can be in constant contact with our patients and our patients can be in constant contact with us rather than just being sent home with a prescription and, you know, some instructions is what, you know, the doctor would like you to be doing. So we we feel that leveraging technology, we can be in partnership with our patients during their healing journey rather than, you know, uh, basically providing... You know, stitching them up in the office and then sending them home, telling them what they need to do. It's just a very, very different approach.
0: So what regulation speed bumps did you have to go through when you were thinking about obviously starting New Life? And, and also, um, how do you also control if they have a sitter or not? Is that something that, that New Life provides?
1: Great question. So, um, let me start with the, the question around the sitters. So we have one, every individual has to have their own sitter and choose their own sitter. It can be a loved one, you know, a friend, as long as you know, the sitter is over 18, that's up to the individual. Um, in part because we have to acknowledge that ketamine and all psychedelics, there's a risk of abuse by any sort of shaman or person who's, you know, witnessing the experience. And so we think it's very important for the individual patient to really choose their sitter quite wisely. Um, We verify that they go through the experience with their sitter in in that the patient and the sitter right before they begin the experience, they have to take a picture of themselves holding up their IDs to sort of verify that the sitter is there and we verify that that's the sitter that took our very short sort of online training course. And so we assure compliance. That being said, that's also why we don't send all of the ketamine all at once, right? That's why we send one dose, the first dose, then we send two doses, then we send three doses to really make sure that our patients are following our protocols. We also offer the option of a virtual sitter. So not only the patient can have the physical sitter, but if they would like to have a experienced psychedelic guide, um, sit through the experience with them, we're happy to provide the guide virtually. You may say, well, hey, Juan, wouldn't it be better to just provide a guide for everyone? And my answer to that is, now you're forgetting our mission. Our mission is to lower the cost of these therapies to make them widely available to middle-income and hopefully eventually lower-middle-income individuals. Every time we add another $100 cost, to an experience, now we're really shutting the door on who can actually afford the experience. So before we got involved, ketamine clinics generally are charging 700 to $1,000 per experience and somewhere between 100 to $250 for every hour of integration and aftercare. If a a standard course of treatment are six experiences, we're looking at at least $6,000 to help somebody reboot and reset through psychedelic experiences, including integration and aftercare, we've lowered the cost to thirteen under thirteen hundred dollars for the six experiences and integration and aftercare. And we are since we're tracking all of our patient outcomes, we're showing that well into the ninety percentile of our patients who go through our protocols have extremely good outcomes in terms of clinically lowering their rates of depression, anxiety, and PTSD. And are there some additional protocols that for certain patients might make the experience a bit easier, a little bit less difficult, or more integrated? Absolutely, but what happens is as we layer on more and more and more of those, you know, as we start gilding the lily with more therapists, more guides, more inpatient work, the cost of the experiences goes up and up. And we have to recognize that many of the most, the people who need these therapies the most, also are the ones with the least ability to pay. The way we look at it is we're not selling ketamine experiences, we're selling a you know, three month mental wellness program and that includes six ketamine experiences in the first month or so to really help a patient reboot and reset to really you know take out of the way whatever those barriers scar tissue is that isn't letting the individual make progress and then spending about 2 months with our patients helping them do the work so we don't believe psychedelics fix you what we believe is psychedelics create you know they lower the resistance to change. But one of the questions we ask all of our prospective patients is, are you willing to do the work? And so just to be clear, we're not selling ketamine experiences. What we're selling is a mental wellness program that uses ketamine to help elevate, you know, sort of blast people out of their depression, blast them out of their hole. But guess what? If people aren't willing to do the work, if those patients aren't willing to do the work, give it two weeks, give it two months, it's not going to be more than six months, and they're going to be basically back to where they were. Just like if, if somebody who isn't happy with their mental wellness, if I could just wave a magic wand, and after six one-hour you know, experiences, their body was in the best physical shape of their life, guess what? If they don't change their relationship with food, if they don't exercise, if they make, don't make a lot of changes, they're going to end up right back where they were. It's
0: the same thing with your mental health. So, you let in 25% of your applicants. How do you approach who is the right candidate and expanding out um, marketing just totally in general? Because, as well, like this is like a kind of a sensitive subject too that we're discussing, right? Let's take a view at our target
1: demographic. So, again, in this space, in the psychedelic space generally, most companies are building a product, a solution for their friends, yeah. affluent white and psychedelically interested and psychedelically experienced. And that's great, we're doing something else. So I began to think, I want to ultimately be able to serve the urban poor as you know, sort of the least ability to pay. I also wanna be able to help recently uh, release from incarceration groups, indigenous groups, first responders, veterans, etc. cetera. But those are all fairly small target demographics, and sort of hard to start there. Well, as I got into this space, I read repeatedly not only that one out of seven Americans takes an antidepressant any given day, one out of seven. More people take an antidepressant on any given day than eat pizza on any given day, to give you an idea. But it turns out that around one out of four to one out of five women over 40 takes an antidepressant. One out of five, it's shocking women over 40 are prescribed antidepressants at three to four X the rate of men, even though there isn't any evidence that there's suffered depression at three to four X the rate of men. And so what we decided was at new life, we would start while we're certainly don't discriminate against anyone that we would really focus on creating a solution that would resonate to women over 40. That's why it's so important Fifty-eight percent of um, the whole team at New Life are women, and an equal percentage of the senior leadership team at the company are women. So we started by saying, why why women over forty? Not only they're overprescribed antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds, um, they have an ability generally to pay overall. You know they spend money on Botox treatments and other kinds of things, but many of those women are psychedelically naive and psychedelically resistant. So they aren't looking, you know, to buy K online, right? They don't, they'd be horrified if that's, you know, if one of their friends is like, you're taking K? You know, they'd be like, what? No, no, like, I don't know what that is. That sounds horrible, right? So, you know, what I realized is, guess what? Veterans, most veterans are also that way. They're not looking for psychedelics. They're looking for healing. They're looking for a solution to address their deep trauma that they were exposed to. Or you look at first responders who are dealing with burnout and all the collateral damage around, you know, COVID. They're burned out. They're not looking for psychedelics. They're looking for a solution that's better than a daily pill that numbs them, right? And when you talk about the urban poor, absolutely. They've been a victim of the drug war, you know, for the last 50 years. The last thing they want is you know, some white dudes slinging more drugs at them, right? So, you know, we really began thinking thoughtfully, hey, women over 40 is, an, is unfortunately sort of the invisible consumer, often is overlooked by brands other than to sell toothpaste and cosmetics to. You know, we want to start by trying to serve that demographic, understanding that if we're able to serve that demographic and message to that demographic, we will have learned a lot as to how to message and serve these other demographics, first responders, veterans, indigenous people, etc And that's why we really chose to start there.
0: So, I mean, after a patient completes the three-month healing journey, do they also, you know, re-engage eventually with New Life? Or I know, obviously, this is very, very early. They haven't been around for very long. But What is kind of like the steps after a patient goes through a program?
1: We've been around for a year, but we've had, you know, incredible traction, you know, helping, I think, 4,000 patients to date. So, you know, we got started and, I mean, it just shows, um, we found the product market fit in marketing terms very, very fast, mainly because, you know, huge need and we were able to demonstrate very early that our approach was different and very scientific-based and very evidence-based. And so the other thing that made us different is virtually everyone in this space is playing the following game. They're trying to substitute daily antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds or just daily not feeling good with monthly or quarterly ketamine treatments. And that's probably a good trade. You know, antidepressants make you feel numb, whereas ketamine treatments and psychedelics make you feel alive and connected. So that's good. But on the other hand, I don't think that our goal should be to keep people dependent on a chemical. And even if it's a plant, I don't think our goal should be you know, helping people elevate their consciousness over and over again by taking a, a pharmaceutical or a plant medicine. As Alan Watts said, you know, if you speak to God, you can put down the phone. You don't have to keep calling him or her up to, you know, keep getting more advice. And so what we've done is we really are looking at the ketamine on the front end to help people reboot and reset. And then our digital platform, which is what our patients go on after their, we call it sort of the ketamine in the first few months, new reset, because we're helping our patients reset. And then after that, our patients can sign up for new care, which is our ongoing digital companion, which includes, you know, Access to the music therapy, access to group therapies, access to continued cohorts and coaches, and access to a new score, which is in essence a, a score a little bit like all the scores that wearables give you, but this is a score focused on your mental well being, but that's also measuring your physical well being. And so, for instance, if we see that a patient who was doing well, suddenly is exercising less, sleeping less, and on their phone more, well, guess what? We don't have to wait for that patient to crash and burn. And there, if they're part of our new care program, maybe they get a text from the algorithm just saying, hey, buddy, see you haven't checked in with your therapist in a few weeks. Now might be a really good time to check in. If you sign up today using the link below, we'll give you 50% off. So there's a lot of sort of little hacks we can do because we're in this constant contact with our patients because we're getting data, you know, assuming the patient gives us access to the data from their wearables, from their phone, et cetera. So as opposed to traditionally when therapists, I mean, think about it, even if you go see your therapist every week, the therapist until you sit down in the couch has no idea how your last week has been, right? From the moment you walked out of the office, you're a complete black box. And that's why a therapist starts by saying, so how are you doing? <laughs> because he doesn't want to say, I have no effing idea how you've been doing because I have no way of monitoring unless, you know, you call me and tell me. So let's let's start from the beginning. We're, through new care, able to be in constant contact with our patients. And that's why, you know, we have the new reset, which is the initial two or three month program. And then we offer new care. But new care is not about more ketamine. It's really about helping people who are already in a good state stay there without crashing and burning. Let me just point out something else. Again, this isn't just altruism, and this is where I think so many companies make a mistake. Listen, if as an industry, what we're doing is just slinging drugs, I mean, of course, we're going to, there's going to be regulatory backlash. I mean, look at what happened with Cerebral recently. You know, they were you know, trying to, you know, get all of their patients on Adderall or whatever. I don't know enough to really comment, but it sounds like they were acting extremely irresponsibly. So again, it might feel, look, I get it. You started a psychedelics company, an investor, you know, says to you, okay, it's great. You're going to use these psychedelics to help people reboot and reset. But, you know, hey, where's the reoccurring revenue model? I need a reoccurring revenue model, Right. right? I mean, that they start banging their table and you're a young entrepreneur, the way I was when we were building Patagon, you know, 25 years ago, and you sort of look at them, say, and you say, well, what do you think our reoccurring revenue model should be? And, you know, this VC says, well, you seem to know ketamine. What about more ketamine? And you're like, yeah, that sounds good. More ketamine, right? And so you, but here's the problem with that. That's short-term thinking because that kind of thinking is going to get this industry into trouble, Right. Because now, you know, we're sort of, it's funny, everyone in this industry will crap all over big pharma, right? And then guess what the business model they're adopting? A very big pharma-esque business model. And so, you know, again, why don't we start by taking a giant step back saying, why the F did we ever get into this industry to start with? Hopefully, because you believe that psychedelics are a technology technology that can really elevate consciousness and help individuals heal a lot of the root cause of what's troubling them, right? And once you look back at why you got involved, you're like, God, I mean, listen, some of our patients absolutely will need some more ketamine, right? Just like some people, you know, even if you do Ibogaine or you go to the best rehab clinic, guess what? Some of your patients will relapse, you know, and- Life happens. And so just because somebody's good today, you know, they could go through a divorce tomorrow, they could lose a loved one tomorrow, you know, an issue of trauma that they thought was resolved could get re-triggered. So, yeah, lots of people are going to need more ketamine or more therapy or more whatever. But we shouldn't set up business models where that is the core of what we're doing because now we're setting ourselves up for failure because guess what? We've told the world that we're trying to build a better, more ethical approach. And when the world's not stupid, you know, when they actually dig deeper into what we're doing, they're gonna realize we're just substituting, you know, one drug for a different kind of drug. And by the way, I feel the same way whether it's ketamine, MDMA, or psilocybin or ibogaine or any, you know, plant compounds, et etc., I would not want to have Reoccurring revenue models, just on more drugs. I want reoccurring revenue models around more healing.
0: That makes a lot of sense, and I, and I also love you sharing how you're going about it with, you know, some of your partnerships too, with wearables and kind of being able to actually track that. And this is also a little bit full circle of our conversation, since you're a big data guy, yeah. where you actually can track that through big data in terms of how you're actually how your patients are actually how their healing journey actually is going.
1: You mentioned one thing, you used actually a really important word there, which was partnerships. And so it's interesting because we recently announced a partnership with Trip, the largest ketamine clinic operator in the US and, and Canada, publicly traded. They have an inpatient model. And I, I got to say, so many people reached out to me, both excited and confused about why we would have done that. And it was super simple. I mean, again, this is an industry which is, just beginning. What we need to start doing as an industry is collaborating try to find ways that we can elevate everyone's gain here. And so even though they're coming at uh, this healing with a different toolkit, you know, inpatient, uh, you know, higher touch kind of approach and much more expensive, what we realized was, hey, different strokes for different folks that, you know, there's certain patients that are going to react better and be more you know better candidates because of a, a, where they're located and their inability to pay a high cost on our platform and we have prospective patients that need a little bit more handholding and can pay and are in urban centers near one of the field trip clinics and so we not only thought hey how can we offer our patients more choice by collaborating but also we said hey by collaborating We're going to sign NDAs and we're going to share the data. You guys are doing, you know, some things that, you know, are getting better results than what we're doing. We want to learn from you. Guess what? You're probably also making some mistakes or doing some things that aren't, that are a little suboptimal. Let us show you how we're doing it. And so part of this collaboration, sure, is to, you know, be able to offer, prospective patients, different alternatives and a hybrid model, et cetera. But also this is about creating partnerships in the industry where, you know, we focus on the fact that even though we might slightly be competitors, what we're really trying to do is help lots of people open their minds and their hearts to these therapies. And in so doing, allowing those people to heal in a way they
0: couldn't heal otherwise. And also what you're trying to do just to build on top of that is to to learn right since this is a nascent you know small industry that you believe could actually grow like the pie could actually grow that you're all kind of able to learn to get th- together with data with you know different outcomes so that that also makes sense
1: again it's we need to stop trying to my mom used to say as soon as you're keeping score you should realize you're playing the wrong game
0: <laughs> yeah
1: and she's right it's I mean, great line. you know it, yeah. look it's it's all just a game, right? right. I mean, right. you know, we're, guess, you know, it's the big learning if you if you paid attention to anything that happened in the 60s was there's nowhere to go and there's nothing to do. You know, we're just on this rock careening through the cosmos and each and every one of us has an expiration date, right? And that's just the reality. So, you know, what matters is, you know, how much love and connection and what how we spend our time. It's much more interesting to spend our time Collectively thinking, how can we help more people heal rather than spending our time thinking, you know, how do we beat the competition for the largest piece of this tiny pie?
0: Totally. Totally, totally. And so since we started talking about reoccurring revenue and, um, and investors <laughs> and all that stuff like that, and, and, and you're just coming off of raising a large A, which congratulations, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, especially in this market too. But how did you pitch to investors? What was that like? What did investors love about the business and were really, really interested about it? And what was the biggest reason that they might have passed on um, New Life?
1: Again, great question, and thanks so much for opening this up. So, yep. One of the mistakes I think a lot of founders make is, um, you know, sort of changing their pitch depending on what they think the investor wants to hear. And so the crazy thing is we started this company. I put a million dollars of my own money into it and really wasn't planning on. I was willing to put in an additional amount of capital and we weren't really even planning on doing a seed round. But I did begin. I did begin to really tell people what we were doing, but making the point that we're a public benefits corp, we're focused on our impact, um, and this is a game we're playing. And guess what happened? A whole bunch of titans of tech showed up, super enthusiastic, wanting to invest. So I didn't pitch them. I didn't approach them saying, hey, you know, why don't you invest in my company? I just would meet with them to talk healing, psychedelics, And what I think is, you know, the most interesting conversation you can have, which is, you know, how can we help a million people heal the root cause of their suffering and disease in the next three to five years or five to seven years. And we just would engage in that conversation. And then they would, you know, approach me and say, Hey, I want to be part of this. Can I invest? So it was just a very different approach. I mean, I know there's that sort of uh, old saw that, Hey, when you're looking for investors ask for advice, But I think everyone, you know, investors know that shit, you know, so they know when you're like, oh, I'd just like to talk and get some advice, look at my dad, you know, they know what they know that dance, right? But it's totally different if you're absolutely passionate. And I got to be honest, I didn't give an F if they ended up interested in investing or not. I just wanted to talk to really smart people and... Tell them, you know, have a real dialogue as to what I was trying to do. And and they got excited. And so imagine Jack Abraham, the founder of Atomic and Hymns, invested, unsolicited. John Oranger, the founder of Shutterstock, invested, unsolicited. Shervin Pishfor, first money in Uber and a director of Uber, invested. The Getty family invested and on and on. So we ended up at the seed round with just these incredible mission aligned investors who had to ask me to invest. I never invited. I didn't even have a deck to give you an idea. And, you know, we raised about $6 million with that non strategy. And then, yeah, when we went to the Series A, we had, you know, we had quadrupled revenues from two hundred dollars to $800,000 a month in four months. And we were running out of cash at one point. But, you know, we had this incredible revenue growth. And what happened was because of the investors we had on the cap table, there was a lot of excitement and interest in what we were doing, but a bunch of the large, large, you know, multi-billion dollar venture funds were much more interested in our growth strategy than what we were trying to do. And I knew that that would just become eventually a Patagon type of situation where, you know, they'd just be, Hey, what do you need to grow? Hey, why don't you sling more ketamine? Or, you know, they just, they just were focused on the growth. And what happened was I met our friends at Obvious Ventures, and they asked such good questions. And they said, hey, if you're growing so fast, isn't shit breaking? Why are you growing so fast? And I said, well, I'm growing fast because I think that's what, you know, venture capitalists like you want. And they said, yeah, the wrong venture capitalists. And, you know, then I got to know them and these got these people, they started the world positivity movement in venture where all of their investments are trying to, you know, have social impact and positivity. And James Joaquin and Mira Clark over there, you know, made the point that, um, hey, most companies fail. So just make sure you're doing some real good along the way, because accept, embrace the fact you're going to work hard, but you may, you're likely going to fail statistically. And, you know, try to do some effing good, you know, try to, try to change the conversation. And we want to support you in that. And of course the subtext is, yeah, and bet you better have a business that makes sense. And, you know, we have a 60% margin and we know how to grow. And we have, you know, we were having a, a, a row as a return on ad spend of five or six at the time. So, yeah, we were killing it by the traditional metrics. But guess what? I was looking for one investor who, you know, would see that but also see what else we have to offer. It's almost like, you know, I don't know, I'm obviously not pretty and not a woman, but I could imagine that, you know, somebody, a man or woman who's beautiful, right? But wants to be seen for not just being beautiful, right? So yeah, it just, you know, we just had conversations with investors who embraced what we were doing and acknowledge the results. I'm not naive. If we hadn't had those results, we wouldn't have had the interest that we had. But look, we ended up closing a twenty. We started a year ago. We got to a million dollars a month of revenues in a year. We have an extremely good margin. We're doing things right. We're capturing the data. We can back everything we say up. And yeah, we were able to raise a $23 million Series A, most of it equity. We also got some venture debt by, you know, very mission aligned investors. We're way oversubscribed and um, you know, we want to change the conversation and improve the world. And if we fail or succeed doing that, if whether we succeed or fail, if we do that, we're always going to have succeeded, even if the company can't sustain itself for some reason.
0: Totally. Thanks so much for recap as well, since you were in a position where you could, you know, kind of pick and choose your investors, yeah. but actually see, even though you that wasn't the purpose of these meetings in the <laughs> first place. But yeah, and Mira Clark is fantastic. She's been on the show. Oh, yeah, she's great.
1: And now she's at Redpoint and, you know, I'm sure that she's going to elevate, not that Redpoint's an amazing fund, I'm sure she's going to even elevate the conversation over there. So it's really beautiful that people like Mira you know, are moving to other platforms and I think spreading that real positivity sort of ethos around Silicon Valley. It's really wonderful.
0: I totally agree. She also writes amazing blog posts. Like really, enemy like its just incredible. She's like and, an incredible. And I writer. don't
1: even know that she's thirty. I mean, that's where it's I like know. where people I know b- bitch about like this generation. I'm like, have you met some of the incredible humans? Like, I'm 55, and I'm like, I want to be like Mira when I grow up.
0: My final question to you is: What's one book that's inspired you personally, and one book that's inspired you professionally?
1: Well, the Way of the Dao, Do Te Ching, which you know was written 400 plus years ago, really is a handbook. For leaders, how to lead without leading, and it really shows that what's important is you know as a leader in today's business. Or what I take from it beyond a lot of you know the philosophy about how to you know proceed through life is really you know in my team, I recognize that people ultimately don't want a boss. They want a mentor. They want a coach. Um, they want a shared mission and vision. And extraordinary people want independence to accomplish that mission and vision with some guardrails, right? And so I've really been inspired by Taoist philosophy generally in terms of how to lead and organize a company. And so that I'd say is, you know, the book, which has sort of um, uh, been most important for me in terms of business. In terms of personally, I'm going to make this easy on your listeners. The problem with books is most people don't you know, start them. they read the first 20 pages, they put them down, they you know, they sit on the nightstand. Yeah, we've all been guilty. So I'm going to make this easy. Alan Watts, Google one of two things, Alan on YouTube, Alan Watts chill step. And what some amazing humans have done is taken the 1950s and 60s philosopher Alan Watts, who's one of the clearest minds in um the sort of personal improvement space and really the first one of the first people to bring eastern philosophy to the west he speaks incredibly articulately on all sorts of topics you know from you know what's life to um what are we doing here to, you know, business, et cetera. And people on YouTube have set his talks to music. And so it's just in the car, you can listen to 30 to hour long speeches or talks by Alan Watts, but set to this very sort of deep house kind of, you know, music. And it's just mesmerizing. And it just is incredible. If, you know, a little bit more upbeat is your thing, there's also a DJ called Akira the Don, who has a whole genre of music called meaning wave, where he's taken philosophers like Alan Watts, like Ram Dass, Richard Alpert, like uh, uh, Timothy Leary, um, like Terrence McKenna, and set their talks to, and, and turned them into songs. And by the way, he's also done that with, you know, some things that Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson, and, you know, more sort of modern people who are thought leaders have to say as well. But Akira the Don and, um, and that's Meaning Wave or just Chill Step with Alan Watts. Incredible resources, and I promise will not only lower your blood pressure, but also, you know, supercharge your brain.
0: No, that's awesome. That's awesome. I'm, I'm super excited to add all this to our uh, uh, to our reading list. This is great. Yeah, just you know, on the
1: subway in the car, it's it's. And by the way, the Chill Step it really becomes a movie meditation. So many friends of mine, you know, oh my god, meditating so hard. I'm like. I'm gonna make it easy. <laughs> Just drop into one of these talks for five or ten or fifteen minutes, and I promise you will feel much better and in a different zone. And that's um, you know that that happens over and over.
0: Hey, yeah, g- yeah, totally, totally, absolutely. Juan Pablo, this was amazing. Thank you so much for your time. This was so much fun. Great, man. I
1: appreciate you. I love what you guys are doing. I bet you d- normally don't go two minutes into a podcast and somebody's talking about doing some Pedro in the desert with their grandma. So <laughs> I appreciate you being patient with me because probably, I you know, probably a few of your listeners are like, "What? Like, I got to go back. What did he just say? I thought right. we were going to talk about you know, return on ad spend. What the hell's going on here?" So.
0: <laughs> and there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Juan Pablo on the show. I hope you all enjoyed this one. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter, at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.